Really would. I'm, I'm excited about our message today. It's uh, from Mark chapter 10. Uh, last week I preached on a, on a little phrase that's found in the New Testament, uh, just a couple of words, one thing. And today we come to one of these other one things of the Bible. This one actually came from the mouth of Jesus as he spoke to this young man. Uh, right before I start preaching, I'm going to show you a video. How many of y'all uh, enjoy playing Monopoly? Anybody? Anybody? Let me see your hands or woohoo, something like that out there. No, there's a whole generation that's never played Monopoly. Oh, my goodness. You, the only thing about Monopoly, it takes like three days to play one game. Are you with me? Uh, my, my kids used to love going down to mom and dad's house when they were little and playing Monopoly with mom and dad, hoping they could win, but they would always come back rather disappointed. And I'd say, what's wrong? And, and they would say, that nanny always beats us at Monopoly. And we don't know what it is, but she really likes dealing that money out. I said, well, she, she's good at that. Anyway, we're, we're going to look at this little video. It introduces the subject matter for today. And I want you to think about what, what's your thing? What's your thing? What's your one thing? You know, all of us have a thing that we enjoy doing and we might be pretty good at, and that's why we enjoy doing it. I kind of like to do cowboy action shooting. Got a good friend of mine in the back, C.S. Brady. He is a world champion cowboy shooter. Man, I, that, let me say, that is impressive to be that good. All of us have one thing we really enjoy doing. That's the positive side, but there's also a negative side to this one thing thing, and that is this. Perhaps there's one thing that is keeping you from being the committed follower of Jesus that he has called you to be. Interesting story here. This story of the rich young ruler appears in three of the four gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all tell us this story. Mark, however, gives us the most vivid of the details. So it's his account that I want to read to you today from Mark's Gospel, chapter 10, starting in verse number 17. Now as he, that is Jesus, was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, and that is God. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he answered and said to him, Teacher, all of these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, one thing you lack, 
Go your way, sell whatever you have, and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up the cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word and went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Lord, I'm thankful for this account that you have preserved in your word for us. I pray, dear Lord, that as I read it and attempt to preach from it this morning, that you would speak it into our hearts. Indeed, Lord, as I speak on the outside, may your Holy Spirit speak on the inside. Lord, I pray that you would draw us to yourself today. Help us to understand this passage and to see the one thing that is keeping us from you. I love you, Lord. Be glorified in this service. In Jesus' name, amen. So let me recount the story to you. Verse 1 of this chapter gives us the setting of the story. Back in chapter 10, verse 1, it says, Then he, Jesus, arose from there, which was Galilee, and came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. So Jesus had spent the night somewhere in this particular region, and the next morning he had got up and he had gone out on the western road. A young man came running up to him. And it's interesting that, that Mark is the only one of the three gospel writers that tells us this young man came running to Jesus. But I mean, it was a bolt of lightning. He was running to Jesus. He did not want to miss this encounter with Jesus. When he reached him, he fell down at the master's feet. Good teacher, he said. Now, here's something else that is worth noting in our story. He is the only person in the Bible who called Jesus by that title. This is the only person who called Jesus good teacher. And perhaps there was just a, a touch of flattery there. We really don't know. But the young man certainly knew how to ask the right question. Good teacher, he said, what must I do to inherit eternal life. Now, that sparked a, a thought in my mind, and, and I've been thinking about this all week. If, if we could just sit down with Jesus, maybe across the table with him with a cup of coffee in our hand, and ask him one question, and only one question, just one question, what question would we ask Jesus? Th think about that. If you could ask Jesus Christ in person one question, what question would you ask him? After thinking about it all week, I decided this young man asked him the best question of all. Really, it was the absolute best question. In fact, I think it shows the intelligence of this young man. He was a very smart young man. He kind of reminds me of the jailer at Philippi with Paul and Silas who said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? In other words, how can I know that I'm going to heaven? How can I be sure that there is life beyond the grave? How can I know for sure that I will have everlasting life? Really, would you agree with me? That's a pretty important question. Maybe the most important question. How do I know I can go to heaven? Now, if somebody came running to me, fell down on their knees in great sincerity and asked me that question, I know exactly what I would do. <laughs> I'm trained to do this. 
I'd pull out my pocket New Testament and perhaps I would take them down the Romans road to salvation. I would say to them, if you out of great sincerity really want to know what you must do to be saved, I can tell you what to do to be saved. Or perhaps I would pull out my Kavanaugh pen. Have you seen those? I think we still have a few around here. You click them, and it, Jason's got one. Maybe they're in the, are they in the pews in front of us right there. You can just take one with you. Click, 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 click. It tells us how we can go to heaven. It's as simple as, it's as simple as, one more time. It's as simple as, it's the ABCs of salvation. A, admit that you're a sinner. We all are. B, believe only Jesus can save us. He's the only way to heaven. And then C, confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior. I know exactly what I would do. I would lead him through that plan of salvation. Wouldn't you? And I would expect that Jesus would have done something similar to that. But he didn't. In fact, Jesus was much more cautious. He almost rebuked the young man. He said back to him, why do you call me good? And then he asked, no one is good except one, and that is God. Now, I don't know about you, but that is a very confusing statement of our Lord. Because we know, in fact, that Jesus is good. We know, in fact, that Jesus is God. And we know that he wants us to acknowledge him both as being good and God. So why did Jesus seem to deflect this young man's compliment? This young man had blurted out, Good teacher! And no one had ever called Jesus that before. So Jesus, in reply, said something like this. That's an odd thing to say. What what do you mean by calling me good teacher? Don't you realize that only God himself is good? And in calling me good, you have actually called me God? So let me ask you, are you willing to live with the implications of that statement? Are you willing to obey me in what I am about to tell you to do? And if so... Let me tell you what to do. You want to have eternal life? You want to know what it takes to have eternal life? Here's what it takes. If you want to go to heaven and have eternal life, the simplest way to do this is never sin. Don't sin. Keep all the commandments. If you never sin, there will never be anything that can separate you from God and eternal life. So, to sum it up... If you really want to go to heaven, all you have to do is be perfect. (laughs) Are you with me? That that is what Jesus is saying to this young man, this, this young boy. And to our astonishment, the young man replies back to Jesus, I am perfect. I've done it. I have kept all of the law since I was a little boy. I've done it. Now, I really think I know what the young guy was thinking. He was thinking about the Old Testament law that is found in the Pentateuch. He specifically was thinking about the Ten Commandments. And as Jesus listed these things, he was checking them off in his mind. Adultery. No, I've never committed adultery. Murder. No, I've never killed someone. Stealing. No, I've never taken anything that is not mine. I've never borne false witness against someone. I have never defrauded anyone. And since I was a little bitty kid, 
did. I have honored my mom and dad. Check, 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 check. Done, did, do. I done it. I got it. Jesus, I got this. Now, our Lord has a curious reaction to all this. Again, had I been Jesus standing there in his sandals, what I would have said back to this young man is, Jack, you got to be kidding me. Dude, really? Seriously? I know you might be a good young man on the outside, but what about your heart? For your heart is desperately wicked, and you are nothing but a sinner. But Mark tells us, and underline this, Mark is the only gospel writer who tells us this. That at that very moment, Jesus looked into this young man's eyes and loved him. This is huge. In fact, let me read it. It's found in verses 21 and 22 of our text. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack. Go your way, sell whatever you have, and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, take up, not my cross, he says, take up the cross and follow me. And at that, a cloud fell over this young man's face. The Greek word that Mark used here when he said that the young man went away sorrowful was a word that the people of Jesus' day used for the weather to describe a gloomy, cloudy, overcast day. In other words, this young man walked away from Jesus with a gloomy, overcast feeling that was engulfing him. His head was hanging low. Why? It tells us he had great possessions and he was not willing to give up those things and take up the cross. So that's the story. Now let me shift gears. We'll, go, we'll just go from first gear to fifth gear right here, right? And we got enough RPMs to do that and talk to you about the problem. What was this young man's real problem? Well, to answer that, let, let me go back and tell you what his problem was not. Okay? First of all, his problem was really not his wealth. Now, I don't think this passage universally and completely is commanding us to liquidate all of our assets, give everything we have away, and then live in abject poverty. Now, I, I know... The story. I know it says he walked away because he had great possessions, but there was more to it than just that. I understand that money and possessions can be an obstacle for many of us. And Jesus actually used this later on in the passage to talk about the stumbling block that money can become. But we also know that there were very many well-to-do godly people in the Bible, such as Job and Abraham, King David, and even Barnabas. So the real problem for this young man was not his wealth. Are you with me? Number two, his real problem was not his youthfulness. Mark doesn't tell us that this young man was young, but Matthew in his gospel account does. Now, I don't know how old he was, but at least in my thinking, in willology, okay, it really wasn't that funny, but most of you didn't get it anyway. The way I interpret, maybe he was in his early 20s. 
could even have been 18 or 19 years old. We really don't know how old he was, but his youth, that is, his inexperience and his immaturity wasn't the problem here. Now, church, I want you to hear me when I say there have been many young people who have followed Jesus Christ and who have accomplished great things for the kingdom of God. God can use young people. God does use young people. For example, one of the deepest and most profound and most beautiful hymns that we have in our hymn book is a prayer. It was actually written in 1862. We're going to sing this hymn together this morning. And as we sing it together, I want you to really think about the words you're saying or singing. These are deep words. They are words of great theology. So in reverence, let's stand up. Can we do that? Stand up. This is Miss Angie's favorite hymn. Let's sing it with her as she leads us. Jesus, I love thee. I know thou art mine. For thee all the follies of sin I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Savior art Thou. If ever I love Thee, my Jesus, tis now. I love
us. Tis now. Amen. Amen. Wow, you can be seated. Give God a big hand as you're being seated. If you love Jesus, give him a big hand. Now, here's the incredible thing and the reason we sang that song. Would you believe me if I told you that hymn was written by a 16-year-old kid? I'm not lying to you. His name was William Featherstone. He was a Canadian youth. He received Christ as his Savior when he was 16 years old. And as a response to being saved, he wrote that great hymn. With those deep theological words, story has it that he instantly sent this poem to his aunt who lived in California, and soon after it became a song. Church, listen to me. God has greatly used men and women, boys and girls of every age, and some of the greatest things that God has done in this earth, he has done through teenagers. Amen. Can, they're not all bad. <laughs> and I can't, wait, I, do, I can't wait to see what God continues to do with the young people he's raising up from Kavanaugh Church. So, so let me tell you something. The problem here wasn't this man's youth. Number three, nor was the problem his rank. We aren't sure what Luke meant when Luke tells us he was a ruler. Mark doesn't tell us that. Matthew doesn't mention it. It is Luke who describes him as a certain ruler. And the word that Luke used meant someone who had some level of authority. Now, it may mean nothing more that this young man was from a wealthy aristocratic family. And perhaps he was helping oversee some aspect of the family's business. But, you know, there is nothing wrong with that. Is there? So it wasn't his rank. And finally, it wasn't his sincerity. The problem wasn't his sincerity. This young man came like a lightning bolt running to Jesus Christ. He humiliated himself and knelt before Jesus. Now understand, he is a rich, young ruler. He is used to having people come to him and bow before him. But he is humbling himself and asking Jesus deep questions about eternal matters, and he seems to be utterly sincere. So what then was his problem? Well, I think this young man just had a reading problem. As simple as that. He didn't know how to read. You say, well, preacher, what do you mean? Well, first of all, he misread the times a key to understanding this story is to understand exactly when it occurred. This story didn't happen late in Jesus's, or early in Jesus' ministry. It didn't happen along the Sea of Galilee early on when Jesus was teaching the great crowds and many people were following him, wanting to be touched by him. No, this story happened later on in Jesus' ministry in the final days before Jerusalem as the shadow of the cross was falling over his pathway. This event occurred late in his ministry. Just before he made his way to Jericho and Bethany, Bethpage and Jerusalem. This happened days before Calvary's cross. Those who were serious about following Jesus were about to be turned inside out. The next few weeks were going to be filled with testing and terror and tragedy. 
Satan was about to sift them. The devil was going to find and exploit every chink in their armor, every spot of idolatry that was in their hearts. And so Jesus was telling this young man, hey dude, if you're really serious about following me, you need to realize that over the next few weeks, your life is going to be turned inside out and upside down. And your money that you're leaning on and depending on is a luxury that you will no longer be able to afford. You are going to be tested. And then after the resurrection, you will be persecuted. And then you are going to be hurled into the ends of the earth to become my ambassador. So go ahead right now and begin detaching yourself from those things that you're clinging to. Start divesting yourself of all of your wealth. Start getting ready for what is about to happen. But this young man couldn't read those times. He didn't understand what Jesus was going through. He didn't realize how urgent and how transient the moment really was. Number two, he misread his Bible. Notice the question that he asked Jesus back up in verse number 17. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, church, if there is one thing that good Baptist people know, they know that the message of the Bible is we can't do anything in and of ourselves to inherit everlasting life. How about a big amen? And that is the truth. This young man was morally upright. He was ethically pure, but he still felt like there was something more that he had to do. There was still one other work that he had to perform, still one other ritual that he must accomplish. But Jesus said to him, you know what? All you've got to do is follow me. And church, sometimes we forget this, but understand what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, I am the one who has to do all the work. It's all on me. And guys, it was all on him. And he did accomplish that task. Jesus did die on Calvary's cross. He did shed his blood for the remission of your sin. Jesus paid it all. And he said, all you have to do is believe that. The Bible says that we are saved by grace through faith alone, not by works. Works cannot save you. You know, that was a stumbling block for this young man. He, he misread his Bible. He really thought, man, if I could just do one more, if I could just accomplish this one more, if I could just do this one more ritual, then maybe I would find favor with God. I would enter into heaven. That is a stumbling block for people still today. What do I have to do, preacher, to get to heaven? <laughs> Believe. <laughs> That's pretty much it. And I don't know how many times I've been told by people whom I've invited to church, well, I will show up one day when I can, when I can straighten my life out good enough to come to church, you'll see me in church. And I, I say to them, well, you'll never, you'll never be there. I'll never see you there. Because let me tell you, you can't straighten your life out by yourself. Do, do you hear me? You can't do it, and you're not supposed to do it by yourself. He paid it all. Jesus did it all. 
You can do nothing to earn your salvation by your salvation. You can never be good enough, do enough. You can't steal it. It's a free gift. Number three, and probably most tragic of all, he misread the Savior. He thought Jesus was this great teacher who could give him spiritual and moral insight. But look at me and listen to me when I tell you that Jesus isn't interested in just being a great teacher who gives you moral and spiritual insight. Although he is that, and although he does that. No, Jesus intends to be the Lord and Master of your life. And anything that comes between you and him in your life is an idol and it will keep you from following him. And it could be anything. That listen to look at me. That thing could be anything. It might be money. Money might be keeping you from really committing your life to Jesus and following him. It seems that money had a big part in this young man's life. But it could be more than money. It might be a drive or a dream for success. It could even be a stubborn streak in which you just want to do your own thing and go your own way. But church, if you and I love anything more than Jesus Christ, it is a soul-defeating, faith-destroying idol in our lives. And that one thing needs to be torn down. So I ask you, What's your thing? What is that one thing keeping you from being a committed follower and wholly devoted to Jesus Christ? I'm about to conclude this message, but before I do, I've got I to share a theory with you. Y'all like theories? Y'all like theories? Here's a theory, and that, that's all it is. It's, it's just a theory. We can't prove this. It's just a theory. I first read this theory years ago when I was in seminary. Uh, the guy that purported it was, was Ray Steadman. Uh, he pastored his entire life, one church out in California. Wrote many books, but in one of those books he, he talks about this theory. There is a possibility that this young man, this rich young ruler, was none other than John Mark, the writer of the Gospel of Mark. Now, why would someone think that? Well, three reasons. First of all, he fits the description. We do know that from the book of Acts, Mark was a rich, young aristocrat. His mother was very wealthy, and they lived in a big house. Secondly, he tells us things here that nobody else could have possibly known, particularly that little sentence, and Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Do you remember that sentence? Matthew doesn't tell us that. Luke doesn't tell us that. Only Mark does. He says, and Jesus looked at him and loved him. Hmm. No one else says that. And it is highly unlikely that any of the onlookers understood or saw that silent communication that went on between these two men. Really, the only two men who could have interpreted that was Jesus and this young man. Number three, this story fits the profile of Mark as we see him in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. He was a young man who was fascinated, literally fascinated with Jesus Christ. He wanted to be a follower of Jesus Christ. 
but he had a really hard time of fully yielding himself and completely committing himself to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Remember that story of Jesus in Gethsemane and the the soldiers came and took him away and all the disciples fled and there's that one little account of a young man who saw Jesus there and he fled. They, They pulled his cloak and he ran off naked. Most people believe that was John Mark. We do know that later on in the book of Acts, Paul and Barnabas are headed out on their first missionary journey and they take young John Mark with them. But at the first sign of trouble, John Mark quit. I say he packed his toothbrush and went back home to mama, you know. It frightened him what he was seeing. In fact, at the end of that journey, when Paul was planning on a second missionary journey, Barnabas said, let's take John Mark with us a second time. And Paul said, no way. I'm not taking that quitter with me again. He ran out on us. He's not going to get a second chance with me. And that division was so tight between these two great men of God who were awesome friends that Paul and Barnabas even split up. And, and that was John Mark. At the beginning. But can I tell you something? God got a hold of John Mark's life. And the second half of his life was completely different. He did yield himself to the lordship of Jesus Christ. He did surrender. He did commit. And he did become a world changer for God. The apostle Paul, the same one who said, I'm not taking that quitter with me at the end of his life, said... Send for John Mark and bring him with you to me, for he can be profitable to me and the ministry. You know, that that says volumes to me. First of all, it says, aren't you thankful for a God who gives us a second chance? (laughs) I mean, really. Because I I can't tell you the number of times I, like John Mark, have, you know, I've failed, I've quit, but God has given me a second chance. And here was a guy who had a second chance, and he took a hold of it. He, he became a committed follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, none of this can be proven that this was John Mark, this rich young ruler. I'm saying all it is is a theory. But it brings us back to you and me. It brings us back to this moment on this day in this church. Because there are some of you in, in this room just like that young man. And, and you're misreading life. You've totally misread life. You don't understand the times we're living in. You think in your head, I've got all the time I need. You know, I'm just going to live my life. I'm going to do my thing. And then when it kind of gets to the end and I don't have anything else to live for or do, I'll give the rest of my days to Jesus. You don't understand the times we're living in. You don't understand that the return of Jesus Christ is imminent. That is, nothing else has to happen before he comes back. In fact, Jesus could come back today. (laughs) The real question is, are you going to go to heaven with him? Are you going to have eternal life? Or is there that one thing that is keeping you from a relationship with him? Maybe you're here today and you're misreading Your Bible. You think that through some kind of good work or good deed or maybe just because your great-grandpappy was a deacon or a preacher, you're going to get entrance into heaven. doesn't work that way. It's by grace alone that you're saved through faith. 
Maybe you're here today and you're misreading and understanding what Jesus wants from you. Can I tell you, look at me. Here's what Jesus wants from you. Everything. <laughs> Everything. After the first service, a, a lady came to me and she said, hey, literally out in the hallway, she said, hey, help me with this because I love, I love my husband. He's the most important thing in my life. I love him more than anything how does that fit into the equation of loving Jesus? And I said, well, of, of earthly people, you need to love your husband more than anyone else. <laughs> and I hope you do. <laughs> but that can't even begin to compare with the love that you have for Jesus. We've we got to understand that this is earthly stuff down here. It's temporal stuff. I love my wife with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. But she's way down the cavity list when it comes between her and Jesus. Are you with me? So what does he want from you? He wants your heart, soul, mind, and strength. There are some here today misreading life. There are others in this room, and, and you haven't fully surrendered to Jesus. Just like this rich young man, you haven't given him everything. Anything that you love more than him is an idol in your life, and you need to get rid of that. It could be money. It could be possessions. It could be another person. It might be a lifestyle choice. It could be that stubborn streak that you just don't want to really give Jesus control of your life. comes down to this. What's your thing? What is that one thing that is keeping you from being the wholly committed, fully devoted follower of Jesus that he's calling you to be? Whatever it is, you need to give it to him today. Would you today commit to Jesus, come to Christ, give him absolute control of your life, break down every idol, cast out every foe, tell the Lord what that 16-year-old Canadian young man said to the Lord, my Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine, for thee all the follies of sin 